to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka here with Sterling Professor of Law and Political Science at Yale University, Akil Reed Amar. Hi, Akil. Nice to see you again, Andy. Another week, another episode. Yes, yeah, so a little more formal introduction today. Um, I'm doing that in part because we may have some additional listeners um, after you. Uh, appeared in the news the last over the last couple of days, so uh, why not? Um, but that's probably grist for the mill of, a, of another episode. Um, today we're going to be continuing a discussion that we began uh, last time, uh, where we offered a uh, framework on how to approach uh, constitutional cases that involve rights. Uh, part of the reason that we did this is that we've we've heard from our listeners that they enjoy. Uh, episodes where we address uh, matters that come before the Supreme Court or other uh, courts in the United States currently. And so we're happy to do that, but we're still trying to do it from a, uh, you know, some perhaps a more professorial point of view where we give this this overall view and then we take it down to, to ground level. So we talked last time about ways to think of the Bill of Rights um, as a whole rather than emphasizing each amendment separately if they were as if they were entirely unrelated. Um, we discussed the concept of incorporation and different ways of thinking about incorporation, total incorporation, selective incorporation, and so forth, um, particularly with respect to the 14th Amendment. Um, and now that we have this overall framework, as I said, looking at rights from 40,000 feet, we're going to try to apply it to a specific case, namely the New York State a Rifle and Pistol Association v. Bruin. This case was argued before the Supreme Court on November 3rd, and of course you know, has yet to be decided. Um, in order to do this, though, we can't just dump our plane on the ground um, from 40,000 feet. First, we've got to uh, look at the actual parts of the Constitution involved, and in this case, that's principally the Second and Fourteenth Amendments, and then we can look at the case itself. So, um, I guess it makes sense to start with the Second Amendment. And to start with the text. Uh, amendment 2. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Uh, now, um, let's take a look at, at the words and the syntax of that sentence. Um, and let's understand its historical context as well. So we're, we're doing originalism of a certain sort, just to remind our audience, um, <clears throat> this is the second amendment to the Constitution. Um, it's proposed in 1789, actually initially uh, by the first Congress. Initially, it's actually fourth on the list of congressional proposed amendments, but the first two don't get ratified. So it's ratified as the second Amendment um, in 1791. It's coming out of the founding era. The First Amendment, of course, very famously, is about um, speech, freedom of speech, and the freedom of the press, free exercise, petition, assembly, um, the Establishment Clause. So now we have the Second Amendment. Um, if you look at it today, you might think there are a couple too many commas in it, and, and you, you might be right. They, they, they punctuated things a little differently. Uh, back then. So um, I think of it as really having two main clauses, the kind of the why clause and the what clause. And it begins with why. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, 
comma, and then the what. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Okay, law, we're lucky here because law almost never tells us why. It just says do it, you know. Um, there are a few places in the Constitution where um, actually we are told why. The preamble of the Constitution very famously says, we the people of the United States, but, you know, what, what's the, 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 the key takeaway point? We do ordain and establish this Constitution. We're doing something. We're voting on it an epic democratic deed, but it also actually, um, in passing, tells us why we're doing it. Um, so the preamble of the Constitution um, um, says, um, we the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish. So it tells us why. Um, there are a couple of provisions um, in uh, uh, the main text of the Constitution that are um, why clauses. Again, law often doesn't um, do this, but um, Article 1 is the longest article. It's about the powers of Congress. The longest section of that um, is actually, it's about Congress generally, Article 1. The longest section in the longest article is Section 8, and it begins um, with a really important power, um, taxing. The Congress shall have power to lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts, and excise. It's not one, not two, not three, four different ways of actually reaching into your and my pockets with taxes, duties, imposts, and excises. But then it tells us why. To pay the debts and provide for the common defense and general welfare in the United States. So, and an echo of that preamble, that common uh, defense general welfare um, language. Now, let's take a, take a look at one more clause of Article 1, Section 8. Uh, I, I told you about Article 1, Section 8, Clause 1, taxes, duties, imposts, and excises, um, and the purpose um, to pay the debts, provide for the common defense and general welfare, the, the preamble language. But nine paragraphs later or so, um, maybe eight, um, here's another clause that tells us the purpose. Congress shall have power, quote, to promote the progress of science and useful arts by securing for limited times to authors and inventors the exclusive right to their respective writings and discoveries, unquote. So Congress is going to have power to pass copyright laws, uh, which every author loves, <laughs> um, and patent laws, um, and trademark laws, but it's going but we know why Congress um, uh, should be passing these sorts of laws. They should uh, pass these laws, quote, to promote the progress of science and useful arts. So there the, the, the text is telling us not just what, but why. Now flash forward, and that's in the main body of the Constitution. That's in Article 1, and we talked about the preamble. Not very many other purposive clauses that I can identify in the Constitution, but, but the next big one is going to be the Second Amendment. So can you comment on, on the significance of these clauses? In other words, do they limit the, the behavior of the clauses that we can only interpret it uh, to be active in terms of those purposes? I think that would go too far to say they're the only purposes. And indeed, the Constitution, interestingly, only uses the word only once. Um, actually, it says treason against the United States shall consist only of levying war um, against the United States or giving aid and comfort to their enemies. Um, and that's in part because it wants to limit the ability of the federal government to call all sorts of other things um, treason, mere disagreeing with um, um, government officials, uh, incumbent um, uh, uh, um, officialdom. So, so 
um, the word only appears only in art, the Article 3 treaty clause. A lot of times it's implicit. Ah, um, Article 1, Section 8 lists the powers of Congress, and presumably um, those are the only powers of Congress. Um, uh, there are about 18 things that are itemized, unless there, something is uh, mentioned elsewhere in the document um, or as part of the spirit of the whole thing. But you wouldn't itemize 17 things, and then there was a, gl- a global 18th clause. Um, if there were plenary power, why try to itemize the 17 things? So um, really, they're, they're only certain powers of Congress. They're not infinite. Article 3 lists nine categories of cases and controversies that federal courts can hear. And presumably, if federal courts could hear any and all lawsuits between any and all litigants, it would have been silly to itemize nine. Um, so, um, so sometimes there is an implicit only that we read into the words of the Constitution, just as we often interpolate them in just an ordinary um, uh, language. Sometimes if I say to you A, B, and C, implicitly it's and nothing more, only A, B, and C, and other times um, not. And this is a nice interpretive question often. There's a legal maxim um, in Latin. It's called expressio unius est exclusio alterius. Sometimes it's called inclusio unius, which says the in- expression or the inclusion of, of one thing or some things implicitly prohibits everything else. So the question is, how should we think about that with a purpose of clause? Is this the only legitimate purpose? And I would say you, it's possible to read it that way, but that probably isn't the bet, necessarily always the best reading, um, especially when it comes to rights, because remember, there's a clause of the Constitution that says don't get too hung up on just the enumeration of rights. There may be unenumerated rights as well, the, the famous Ninth Amendment. So especially because of that, when it comes to rights, if a certain purpose is enumerated, I might be hesitant to say, well, it's clear that that's the only purpose for that right, and you can't go you know, one inch beyond that purpose. Well, and also, of course, you've made the point, and you did say it earlier when you were answering my question, you said, well, you know, yes, things may be uh, enumerated here, but there might be things in the spirit of the document or the implications of the documents. Yeah. Of course, that's at the heart of your comments on McCulloch versus Maryland, you know, that you shouldn't just say that the enumerated powers are only contained here and everything else is contained in the necessary and proper clause. No, there's actually other places to find authority for, for Congress. Well, when it comes to McCulloch, when we'll just mention it quickly and then uh, leap back to the Second Amendment, and we talk about McCulloch in part because Andy knows that in my new book, which I haven't uh, plugged in the last 15 seconds, (laughs) um, um, and which apparently audience members are less interested in than talking about the modern-day Supreme Court, but um, uh, we'll get back to the book from time to time. But in the book, I talk about McCulloch. Um, The book is The Words That Made Us, America's Constitutional Conversation, 1760 to 1840. And one of the two or three undeniably biggest Supreme Court cases in that period is McCulloch versus Maryland, which upholds the constitutionality of a federal bank. And what I tell the readers is the key to McCulloch isn't really the result, because by the time the case comes down in 1819, no one's really um, arguing about the bank uh, anymore. The original opponents of the bank, James Madison and Thomas Jefferson, are now on board with the bank. It's Madison himself 
who as president signs into law a renewed bank bill that's the bill that comes before the court um, that's upheld unanimously by John Marshall's uh, uh, court in an opinion that he writes. Uh, it's a court that has um, of the seven members on it, five are actually appointed by Madison and Jefferson um, themselves. And to repeat, it's a unanimous decision. So um, the result really, um, the, the uh, federal power, congressional power to have a bank was not really in doubt. So why is McCulloch so important? Um, McCulloch is important largely because it's actually a great case about how to interpret the Constitution. It's a wonderful um, case study in constitutional interpretation, and it's a case that very much attends to spirit and purpose as well as the letter of the Constitution. And in a nutshell, and this is what you were channeling, Andy, in a nutshell, Marshall says, here's why a bank is permissible, um, the con- congressional power to have a bank, because it actually um, helps with common defense, um, because it turns out that having a central bank is really useful for collecting a lot of tax revenue and borrowing money in advance, lending it to the federal government, um, which might need it immediately for a war, paying troops on site and on time, um, getting uh, paying um, war um, suppliers, uh, people who are making the, the uniforms and the and the shoes and 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 are providing the food for the troops. You need to get money um, to the the your troops and their suppliers on site and on time. It's a big country having a central bank with branches everywhere that can collect money um, from from everywhere on the continent and and funnel it or channel it to any other place in the continent where it's needed immediately that can borrow a whole bunch really quickly, maybe even before the taxes come in, the bank can borrow national bank in anticipation of the tax revenue that will flow in soon enough. A bank, Marshall argues, is really useful um, for national security, and common defense is a defining purpose of the Constitution. Um, our audience has already heard that because they've heard the words common defense, not just in the preamble, but in Article 1, Section 8, first sentence, um, the, 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 the first clause of the longest section of the longest article, which is about how Federal government's going to need the power to tax you and me up and down and sideways, taxes, imposts, excises, and duties. Why? For common defense. So Marshall is purposive. He actually understands that a bank is an easy case because it's so tightly connects to the central purposes of the document that are actually mentioned not once but twice in the preamble, the first sentence of the document as a whole, and also in the first sentence of the longest section of the longest article. So um, so that's actually holistic purposive analysis. Um, and now um, we're going to see how that applies on the right side. Um, McCulloch is a case really largely about governmental power. And my claim is on the right side, even if the document only identifies purpose A, I'm going to be a little hesitant to say only purpose A because there are unenumerated rights. Um, um, We might want to be a little more strict about uh, unenumerated powers. We wouldn't want to go hog wild with unenumerated powers such that federal power became utterly infinite and plenary because if we did that, 
Someone could say you're really not doing justice to the idea of specific enumerations. Yes, enumerations should be read purposively and, 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 and where appropriate, expansively, but really it shouldn't be in infinity. Okay. So now we're back in the, in the text of the amendment. Okay. So now and we've established this, this purpose clause. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. Now it's telling me at its core, it's about, in effect, civilian supremacy. Um, the idea is, um, what's the militia to be contrasted with? In effect, an army. We really, um, an army is more dangerous to a free state and we're going to need to know why they thought that and, and, and place this purpose of clause in the context of the rest of the amendment and American history. So now let me just continue. Just well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, comma, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. So here's the, the key idea. First of all, um, um, the word militia, in the first clause, has a counterpart in the second clause, and the counterpart is the people. Today, um, um, we may miss that, but at the founding, the militia, in effect, are the people, and the people are the militia. Um, so by militia, they don't mean some small group of paid, semi-professional um, uh, soldiers like today's National Guard. That's not what, that, that's an organized militia. It's, it's not so different from an army if they're paid semi-professional. Um, um, the militia was basically in effect the people in arms, um, the political people. The original draft of this amendment actually at one point said a well-regulated militia, comma, composed of the body of the people, comma, being necessary to the security of a free state, but there were just too many positives and too many commas, so they, they pulled that out. But that, from a syntactical point of view, this amendment would, would almost, and, and we'll put the text up, of course, um, on, uh, on our uh, uh, website so that people can just uh, look at it for, for themselves. But it would almost have something akin to a dangling modifier um, uh, unless militia equals people. So what's the world that they're imagining that militia equals people the idea and note that it's, it's not persons it's people the idea is that um, um, your military should be um, which is going to need to defend the republic um, should not become a threat to the republic your military should look like your um, um, your, your polity um, the people who are sovereigns um, with legitimate power to, to, to make um, policies and laws should also, in effect, um, control um, the people who are um, enforcing those laws in, in the last instance, the, the military. You want the people to um, uh, be properly represented in the legislature, in the executive, in the judiciary, and in the military. So... Um, now we're doing we're doing a certain analysis that I've called intratextualism. Let's take that keyword people because remember an earlier version of the Second Amendment said a well-regulated militia, comma composed of the body of the people. Okay, so so um, where else do we see this word people? Well, I told you that the preamble: we the people do ordain and establish the constitution. That's the political people. That's that's voters in effect. Okay, um, and then. 
the, the um, one paragraph later, at the beginning of Article One of the Constitution, which is about the legislature, Article One, section Section One is a sentence. So there's the preamble, and there's one sentence saying Congress is going to have all the legislative powers that are conferred in this document. And the next sentence: The House of Representatives shall be composed of members chosen every second year by the people of the several states. So again, people are your voters. So the voters ordain and establish the Constitution. We, the people, did ordain and establish this thing in an act of epic uh, democratic inclusiveness, the the hinge of human history, I've called it, the the Big Bang. More people were allowed to participate in this than had ever been allowed to vote on anything significant in the history of the world, okay? So it begins, we, the people, um, um, because that was a big deal. And, and the people are basically your political people, the voters. They ordain the Constitution. They pick the House of Representatives every two years. And the representatives are supposed to be representatives of the people. Um, now, the word people doesn't appear in Articles 2 and 3, but um, the people, in effect, um, are, are picking the president in a filtered way, but they pick the, the president. Um, and they serve on grand juries, um, which is part of the executive branch, and that's the people. And in Article 3, they serve on trial juries, and, and they're supposed to be representatives of the people. And now you see it's the same people who are supposed to be your well-regulated militia. In fact, militias are, as we talked about earlier, a lot like um, juries. They're basically a citizenry. And you don't want your judiciary to just be dominated by unrepresentative um, uh, bureaucrats, judges, or dominated by um, uh, prosecutors um, who um, uh, are um, uh, uh, aloof from the citizenry. You don't want your representatives, your, your legislature, um, to um, just be um, uh, some uh, autocratic, oligarchical elite. Your legislature should come from the people, in some sense, or at least part of it, um, should be um, the people um, in, in uh, uh, Congress, the people... Um, in the executive branch, grand juries, especially the people in the judiciary, trial juries, and now the people in the military, as opposed to, see, an army isn't like that. It's not representative, necessarily. It could be composed of, of, of convicts or of, of vagrants or of, of foreigners, mercenaries, paid Hessians. So this amendment is saying we want our military to look like us, just like we want our legis- the, the constitutional conventions that ratified the Constitution to look like us, the legislature to look like us, um, grand juries and trial juries to look like us, is fundamentally about representative government. It, it, the concern is about civilian supremacy over the military, because even if you had a perfectly ordained Constitution, preamble, and a really well-governing and well-running representative Congress and executive branch and judicial branch, if the army has a mind of its own, a will of its own, if it's a power within a power, to use a, a famous phrase at the time, if it's imperium in imperio, a kind of kingdom within a kingdom, that's going to be a threat to the republic, which in, in a Second Amendment is what, what's about the security of a free state. And state there doesn't mean New York, Connecticut, Pennsylvania. It means a free regime, a free republic. I'm going to read it one more time, Andy, and then we'll move on. But now you can hear, I hope, with fresh ears this language. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. 
at its core, it's about civilian supremacy and military, do military subordination. Your militia is supposed to be like the jury. It's supposed to be ordinary people mustering on, on the square regularly, just as they show up regularly for jury duty, just as they show up every two years to vote for the House of Representatives, just as they showed up in the preamble to vote for conventions, ratifying conventions, and in turn deliberated on the Constitution. So it seemed that the you know, applying your logic of uh, here as being uh, the militia's j- jurors with guns, um, you know, the uh, the logic would be sort of akin to, well, you know, it would be like denying the jurors access to the jury box. Yes. You know. And by the way, um, what I just done in about 10 minutes should be contrasted with the exposition of Justice Scalia in the first important modern Second Amendment case, a case called Heller, which um, I think he got the right result, but I criticized his analysis in a piece in the Harvard Law Review. We put it up in our uh, show notes for our last episode, and we'll, do, we'll have a link to it um, in this episode as well, because he doesn't actually give you that general vision. He's playing with little dictionaries um, and, and doing a kind of a, um, a, a grammatical, syntactical logic shopping exercise and he's not seeing the Constitution panoramically, holistically, historically. Oh, let me tell you a little bit now about the history, because this is originalism well done, which is not looking at dictionaries. So obviously, this amendment is coming out of the Revolutionary War experience, as indeed the entire Constitution comes out of the Revolutionary War experience and the Bill of Rights. And, and, and when we close our eyes now, we can see Lexington and Concord and Bunker Hill, um, uh, which are the early military clashes um, in uh, what will become the, the, the war, um, the, the Revolutionary War, the War for Independence. And in the battles of Lexington and Concord in 1775, April 1775, you have the Minutemen, um, militiamen, ordinary farmers um, who um, uh, routinely organize and muster and array themselves and, 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 and practice in the town square just as they show up for jury duty and they show up for town meetings and they show up to, to, to um, um, a vote for um, uh, local representatives. These same people, they're the voters, they're the jurors, um, they're your militiamen. And They've got their arms in their homes. They're keeping arms in their homes, and they pour out of their homes um, uh, to basically um, uh, challenge the, the the British redcoats, the paid professional um, uh, army men um, who um, are not representative of anything. They're not even British, many of them. They're just paid Irish mercenaries, uh, frankly. They're not remotely representative of um, uh, 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 Boston or Massachusetts or um, uh, America more generally. And so th- this is an amendment that says the army could be just an engine of oppression, um, um, uh, 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 not uh, of, 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 again, and later on there'll be Hessians and, and, and foreign mercenaries, militia, that's um, us, um, we the people, um, um, just as the jury is us, we the jury. You know, we the voters, um, um, uh, we the members of the House of Representatives who claim to be genuinely representative of the people. Here's one other way of putting it. Thus far, this image that I'm painting, and it's of, of, of keeping arms in your home, but then using them militarily, bearing arms, 
um, uh, which is a military phrase, um, and you see it in various state constitutions used militarily, it's not 100% clear that this original vision would be, for example, about women. Um, uh, it doesn't say the right of persons. It says the right of the people. And the preamble, women aren't quite voting for the Constitution, and we, the people, do ordain and establish. They're not quite voting for the House of Representatives. Uh, Article 1, Section 2, every two years, it's the people picking the representatives, but not the women. They're not actually serving in the local militias. Um, and so they're at the periphery. Maybe they're included, but I'd have, to be, I'd have to read the language of the original Second Amendment pretty expansively to bring in the widow or um, the, the un, un, unmarried, um, the never married um, uh, uh, woman called Femme Soul um, uh, at the time of the uh, 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 founding. So I could read it very expansively, but note that it says people and not persons. Um, uh, and um, uh, and again, Scalia is not interested so much in in my kind of originalism, which is panoramic, uh, purposive, um, and very historical. Um, and he kind of picks and chooses very selectively. So um, at the end of the day, um, if we only have the Second Amendment, is there a right to carry a gun? Uh, uh, to keep a gun in your home? Yeah, uh, they ca- had guns in their homes in Lexington and Concord. How about to carry, to, to, to uh, bear arms um, uh, uh, on the town square for a regular militia muster? Sure. Um, but what about just carrying guns um, in other contexts to, um, uh, for hunting purposes, you know, for um, a target shooting, for recreation um, uh, Maybe, but it's a bit of a it's a bit more of a stretch because it's not at, it, now it's not as tightly connected to regular militia muster. You can say, no, hunting practice is going to make you a better soldier, um, and target practice is going to be useful for all these purposes. Um, but um, you see, it's it's at the periphery of the original Second Amendment vision. In fact, though, we've only t- done a third of the analysis because we're going to have to look at. Civil War experience and the 14th Amendment, we're also going to have to look at gun rights today and, and broader concepts of unenumerated rights. I also think that, uh, you know, you keep, you, you've used the phrase um, the military um, with respect to the militia, that, the, that you don't want the military to be a threat to the populace. Um, but I would, I would argue that the original Second Amendment and this concept that you've outlined actually pays attention to and respects and countenances uh, the fact that military technology and military reality can change and therefore that this, the impact of this amendment can change. And what I, I would point to is the fact that it wasn't really the military, it was the army, because the Navy was not considered a threat. Yes. At the time, in the same way, because of and why? Because because of the military reality of of what a navy means versus what an army means. So it isn't just all military. Okay, it's it's all. It really would be read more properly as all military, which poses a threat, you know, to the populace given the military technology at the time. Well, let, because let, let it me, would have been a day when there, when you know the navy would have had a different role. Let me take that point in a slightly different direction. But you're absolutely right. The founders 
were um, very nervous about armies, standing armies, but not about navies, for the reason that a navy can't um, threaten um, a, a, a domestic population nearly so much, um, either in England, Britain, or in America. Um, you know, a navy could only threaten the coastline. In America, most Americans, um, uh, I mean, the, the, the coastline is the most densely populated part of America, but 90% of Americans don't, don't live within you know, pounding distance of a, of a, of a ship cannon. Um, so, um, so a Navy was less threatening to domestic liberty than a standing army that could go everywhere um, um, was. Um, the framers thought that Britain was free um, after the act of union of, of England and Scotland because it could rely on a Navy. The Navy had to be able to beat the Spanish Armada, remember 1588, but wasn't a threat to domestic liberty. Um, and standing army would be, you didn't need a big standing army in Britain because you could rely on a navy. It's an island nation. The continent of Europe, the, fra- uh, the framers believed, was much less free because you had all these internal land borders, which led to armies, which led to um, dictators, which used the armies domestically to, to threaten freedom. So that's a big theme of the Constitution. You're absolutely right. It's very prominent in the new book, The Words That Made Us. Um, um, and... Um, it's why, if we're reading panoramically, um, we can see that the army has to be reauthorized every two years, appropriations for the army, but not for the Navy. So, so they were worried about armies, especially, um, less so navies. They wanted to create, the, the patriots did, um, the revolutionaries, an America in, on the model of Britain, where we create a unified um, um, uh, regime, just like the Union of Scotland and England, but now it's the Union of Massachusetts and Connecticut, New Hampshire and Rhode Island, all the way down to uh, Georgia. A union of these 13 get rid of, in, in effect, internal international borders. So there are no borders from Maine to Georgia. It's just one regime, kind of an island regime. We're trying to recreate something like Britain. Instead of having the English Channel, which the Brits have, we'd have the entire Atlantic Ocean, a huge moat to protect us. We won't need a big army um, because there's no um, land boarding regime that can threaten us if we unite. All we'll need is a navy, and a navy won't threaten liberty domestically very much because most of us don't live within pounding range of of, um, uh, the coast. That's the original vision. And so you're right, they're attentive to... Distinct threats posed by distinct kinds of force. Armies versus navies versus militia. Let me take it, though, in one other direction, Andy, because we're reading things panoramically. This is what Scalia doesn't, in my view, do so well in Heller, even though he gets the right result. You do have a right to have a gun in the home for self-protection, but not merely for the reasons that Scalia gives, um, but because of things that happened later in American history after the Civil War, um, uh, the 14th Amendment experience, and indeed um, because of things uh, that are true of modern America. So we'll talk more about that. Um, but let me um, uh, identify um, another clause of the Constitution um, that Scalia, I don't think, brings into his analysis very much because he's not panoramic um, the way I try to be. Article 1, Section 8, Clause 15 gives Congress power, quote, to provide for calling forth the militia to execute the laws of the Union, suppress insurrections, and repel invasions. So, yes, they can be used militarily, for example, to repel an invasion, you know, of a foreign army. 
And note that an, an, an army might be at the founding used actually um, in, on someone else's ground, like the British expeditionary force um, leaving the island of Britain and, and, and going to the continent. But a militia actually is more for um, um, a, a homeland defense to repel invasions. And actually in the War of 18. 12, a New York militiamen um, pushed the British um, out of New York. They pushed them to the Niagara River and they refused to cross the river into Canada. They said, oh, we can, we're only a, a homeland defense um, a body and, and, and we're not um, an offensive military force. We defend our homeland. We don't want to get far away from our homes. We're a militia. Okay, which is um, so, so the militia does um, repel invasions, which is quintessentially military. Suppress insurrections, well, depending on how big the insurrection is, that's kind of quasi-military. That's the Whiskey Rebellion um, that I talk about, actually, um, in, in the new book, where Washington got as present, got on his horse in uniform and led a massive military force, mainly militiamen, to suppress, um, actually, um, uh, um, uh, a band of folks who were arrayed militarily, um, but they quickly disbanded. But note the other thing that, uh, that the militia can use for, to, to execute the laws. So the militia back then was not just purely military, but doing things that today we would call police functions. Before you have paid professionals, basically your jurors and your militias are, are basically pitching in and doing all sorts of things um, that today you know, we, we um, have professionals doing. Um, so fixing potholes in, in, in roads, doing disaster relief if there's a, 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 a weather incident, a, a, a tornado or, or, or a flood, enforcing laws um, uh, 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 when the local constabulary um, is overwhelmed. Um, so you're right, a militia isn't purely and solely just um, uh, a military with a capital M. It was interesting you said that they um, aren't the same as the National Guard, which is a small subset of the population. On the other hand, the duties that you just outlined are similar to the duties of the National so Guard. So the framers would have distinguished between the general militia, which is basically your, your voters um, composed of the body of the people, and a select militia. And a select militia was actually in many circles seen as not so different from an army. What made a select militia select its paid, semi-professional, a much of, of, of volunteers. What made a general militia different? It's basically, in effect, all the voters, or at least all the voters are close to it, um, who are capable of, of serving. So um, um, maybe actually um, men between the ages of 16 and 45, that was an, an early understanding. Now, that's not exactly your voters because people are voting at age 50 and, and 60, and, and the age of, of, of voting might begin at 21 rather than 16. But um, uh, who serves on your militia? Who serves on your jury? Um, who um, uh, 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 votes? These are very closely, um, uh, they're very similar. Um, they, they, they bear a very tight family resemblance. Voters, jurors, militiamen. Jury duty, militia duty, very similar. So, you know, given that this interpretation of the Second Amendment at the founding that you've outlined, um, just getting back to the word people, um, so you say the people is, is 
is plural here, or or is it singular? It's a collective. It, it's not persons. It's you know, there's a there's yeah. a social so structure to it. Okay, so wouldn't yeah? And then you say, well, you know, was there an individual right to bear arms at the founding? Yes, yeah, sort of, but it's at the periphery. I mean, it seems to me a a better formulation would be to say there may have been such a right, but it's not in the Second Amendment. It's actually an unenumerated right. You could say that, um, but you because could say- it, this doesn't seem to be that seems to be a much more clear interpretation of this. Um, you know, because you're really twisting it to to throw in how can people be individual and collective. Uh, particularly in light of the, well, you know, of the clause that preceded. Well, let's let's remember that our history. So it talks about keeping arms, and you could say, oh, the arms have to be stored in a local armory. Um, and indeed, the British in April of 1775 were actually marching to Concord to actually capture um, weapons in a central armory, which had gunpowder and and guns. But in a but. That wasn't the only keeping, and, and the word keep can also mean like a fortress, a keep, a, a, a fortress. Um, but people actually did keep, um, militiamen, minutemen, had guns in their individual homes as persons, so to speak. Um, and yes, bear arms, I think at its core is military and collective, and you see that in a bunch of state constitutions that talk about bearing arms, okay? But on the other hand, what if actually... Um, it's not actually bearing arms in a battle, but um, carrying your weapon from your home to the town square because Captain Parker has um, is summoning you uh, at, after Paul Revere's ride to show up um, on the Lexington uh, town square um, just to stand uh, to at attention while the British marched by. They weren't actually planning. To, to shoot, to, to have a military encounter. Um, is that arms bearing when you're carrying your gun from, you're keeping it in your private home, you're carrying your gun, which you own, it's your gun, um, uh, um, uh, uh, from your home to the town square. So, so um, and now you see both the ways in which it's, it's not completely unconnected to the founder's vision, um, but it's a little bit more at the periphery um, then Scalia wants to admit. Well, and I think that's very relevant when we get to the New York case because it's, it's you know, you can say, well, you have a right to have guns in the home for self-defense and you can tie that to other amendments that, uh, that uh, you know, pay a lot of attention to what you do in your home and your home is your castle and common law and so forth. Um, but Outside the home might be different. And here's one argument you can make correct. for that, Andy, which is, the founders' militia doesn't exist anymore, okay? I've actually connected private uh, gun-toting and, 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 and gun-keeping to something that really did exist at the founding. There really was um, regular militia musters in colonial Massachusetts, um, just like there was regular jury service and regular voting. Today we have regular voting. We have occasional jury service, not nearly so um, uh, uh, robust, and we don't have actually um, the general militia mustering uh, um, at all anymore. We have um, a National Guard that's actually more of an Army Reserve system, much more of a pure select militia, much more like the Army than general militia that was at the heart of the original Second Amendment. So just to repeat, you have voting today, you have jury service to some extent today. 
you don't really have the founders militia at all today. And if that's the sole rock upon which the second amendment is founded, Oh, that rock is now underwater. That's the, the, um, uh, you know, the complexity here. Um, exactly. And I think that, you know, a lot of that comes down to whether you're going to allow people to do more work than what your original formulation, you know, uh, called for, which is that it's, it's, it corresponds to militia. Right. But, um, and and also remember, the fact that, remember also we said it's possible to say this is the, a key purpose, but not the only purpose. But in any event, you see now why it's a little edgy if you only have the Second Amendment, which is all Scalia tries to rely on in Heller. It becomes easy when it comes at least to gun, when it comes to guns and homes, when we actually now um, move forward and talk about the next epic constitutional war in America, which is not the Revolutionary War, but the Civil War. Yes, and of course, this is sort of what I was getting at when I was when I was presenting an alternative formulation uh, of thinking of the of the right, the personal right to bear arms as an unenumerated right. Mm-hmm. So, um, and we'll talk about that even again when we talk about modern America beyond the 1860s. Mm-hmm. Um, but my claim that in the last episode was. Almost everything that um, we think about and do when we think about the Bill of Rights is actually influenced not just by the text and history of of amendments uh, and original adoption history of amendments one through ten, but by the later Fourteenth Amendment, um, who, which is adopted after the Civil War. And again, since we're being good textualists here, and then we'll bring in more history. Um, the key sentence of the 14th Amendment for our purposes in, in this podcast is the second sentence. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. I note that there, that there, there are some echoes there of the original First Amendment. Um, shall make no law abridge all appear in the First Amendment and now also appear in the 14th Amendment, but now it's states that are limited. The original First Amendment limited Congress, the original Bill of Rights limited only the federal government. Why? Because the original Bill of Rights was adopted in the shadow of a revolutionary war in which there was a lot of anxiety about a central government, unrepresentative Britain, with its um, unelected parliament, at least unelected by Americans, um, 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 with um, uh, judges that no American had had picked in its judiciary um, and um, with its army that didn't look at all like America, uh, composed of, of, of Irishmen and, and Hessians and, and, and for other foreign mercenaries. OK, so there's anxiety um, after the Revolutionary War about a far away unrepresentative government. What's the solution? Local assemblies, local juries, local militias in the Second Amendment. Um, and that's that's Lexington and Concord and Bunker Hill, and that's the painting that John Trumbull paints of the Battle of Bunker Hill. The, the militiamen are the heroes, the redcoats are the villains. And we're going to come back to that painting, which we'll put up on on uh, on the show notes in, in just a minute. Now, and that was our first big constitutional war, a war of independence that has constitutional implications. It's going to lead to a strong federal government eventually, because we need, we're going to need one to to beat the Brits, but we don't want them to become. Like just like the Brits, we want our George Washington to be better than their George. And one of the things we want to do 
um, is to make sure that we preserve these local institutions that can push back against an imperial center, juries and militias. And juries, as we talked about last episode, are at the heart of the Bill of Rights. Grand juries in the Fifth Amendment, trial juries in criminal cases in the Sixth Amendment, civil juries in the Seventh Amendment. And as you um, uh, rightly reminded our audience, militiamen are kind of jurors with guns in their hands. So it's a similar vision at the founding. Second Amendment, Fourth Amendment, I'm sorry, Second Amendment, Fifth, Sixth, Seventh. I said fourth because juries are actually deciding what searches and seizures are reasonable and what ones aren't, civil juries. So you see them in a lot of the original Bill of Rights. That's because it's a response to the American Revolution in which the localists are the good guys. And now, flash forward, a new constitutional war, um, civil war, war about constitutional first principles. And in that war, the good guys, as, as you know, the Constitution sees the story, um, are the, um, the officials of the central government, Abraham Lincoln, um, the Union Army, Ulysses S. Grant, the boys in blue, not the bad redcoats, but the good boys in blue, the good Americans who stand up for elections and the rule of law. And who's problematic? These so-called militias organized locally that are actually staging a kind of insurrection, you know, on a much grander scale than January 6th of this year. They're taking up arms against a duly elected government, and now we don't love these militias anymore. Um, And we adopt a set of amendments, and the 14th Amendment reflects that new vision. We want rights against states and local governments because they've misbehaved. A new Bill of Rights, not against the center, but against the periphery. And... Um, And gone is any celebration of militia. You won't see that word in the 14th Amendment. Um, And it's a more private vision, talking about privileges and immunities of citizens, of individuals, rather than of a collective people. It's not quite military. It's more civilian. It's not quite collective. It's more individualistic. It's not quite local. It's more nationalistic rather than states having organ, um, militias that can push back against the central government, no state can interfere um, with certain basic individual rights. And what individual right did, did the framers, did the, what individual rights, privileges, immunities did the framers have in mind? Freedom of speech against states that might try to suppress them, not just Congress, but now states um, might try to suppress freedom of speech and of the press. Yes, free exercise of religion. Again, protect against states. These are all privileges and immunities, free speech, free press, free exercise, that no state or locality can can um, abridge. But now there's an idea that um, a gun in the home for self-protection is indeed a core privilege, immunity of citizens that um, states shouldn't be able to interfere with, especially um, the right of blacks to have guns in their homes for self-protection because they're not going to be able to count on the local sheriff um, if the Klan comes calling. It's a different vision of arms bearing. It's captured in an 1860s uh, cartoon in Harper's Weekly called The Freedmen's Bureau. We're going to put it up on our website, and I want the audience to note that that image of blacks with guns in their homes for self-protection Um, in this uh, Harper's Weekly cartoon from the 1860s is a pun on, a riff on, and an inversion of Jonathan Trumbull's 
very, John Trumbull's, excuse me, very famous uh, depiction of the Battle of Bunker Hill. Battle of Bunker Hill, militias are the good guys. It's states' rights oriented. It's military. It's collective. It's the people. This new version, it's much more private. The uniforms have come off. It's very nationalistic. The good guys are the central government. It's individualistic. The national government will protect an individual right to have a gun in the home for self-protection because we can't count on localities um, uh, uh, anymore. And we don't love uh, state militias so much. In fact, the state militiamen in John Trumbull's depiction have kind of morphed into Klansmen in this 1860s um, uh, um, cartoon. And we're also going to put up um, uh, a very short, on our, uh, on our uh, uh, website, a short little piece, uh, interview that I did with um, the great journalist Ezra Klein. It was the day of the Newtown massacre, the Newtown gun tragedy, very close to where I live. And I actually um, uh, walk um, Ezra Klein through and therefore the reader through these two depictions of arms bearing, one at the founding, one after the Civil War. And you'll be able to see the similarities and differences uh, between these two. It's a, it's a piece that appeared on December 15th, uh, 2012. And it's, uh, it's called um, A History of the Second Amendment in Two Paintings. And It'll take our audience members three minutes to, 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 to read the thing and, and look at the two paintings, the two pictures. Yeah, so I think that makes it clear, you know, if you might, you read the Second Amendment, you say, well, how are you going to incorporate that, you know, in, uh, you know, in, in the way that we talked last time about incorporation? And I think that, that makes it clear. Um, underlying that, uh, you know, there's a, a right that's being protected um, for the the blacks that are defending themselves against the Klan. And the right that's being protected is not the right to bear arms. That's a means to an end, right? The right that's being protected is the right to live, in a sense. Um, I want to read to the audience um, um, a, some, a, just a few um, snippets of history from the 1860s. Um, yes, they are channeling a different legal tradition, not actually the clauses in American history that talks and English history that talks so much about arms bearing, which is quintessentially political, but other portions, for example, of, of William Blackstone that talk about basic rights of, of, of life um, and, 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 and liberty. Um, and um, here's actually the language of the Freedmen's Bureau Bill of 1866. It's a companion statute to uh, the 14th Amendment. Um, it's the Freedmen's Bureau Act. It was adopted, um, was um, uh, proposed the same day as the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which was in turn a companion statute to the 14th Amendment, the Civil Rights Amendment of 1866. And it here's what the, that statute said. It, it affirmed, quote, laws concerning personal liberty personal security um, and uh, uh, property, real and personal, including the constitutional right to bear arms, shall be secured to and enjoyed by all the citizens. Now, all the citizens include women. They're not part of a militia, but, but they have rights of personal liberty and personal security. Gone are the references to militia. They've taken that phrase, bear arms, and they've really demilitarized it in the extreme. It's about, as you said, personal liberty 
and personal security, even as they're using the same phrase, bear arms, but they're using it in a, in a different context. Um, uh, earlier, um, uh, the most famous Supreme Court case of that era, um, an 1857 case, Dred Scott, said, oh, blacks cannot be citizens. Why not? Even free blacks, because if they were, they would have a right to keep and carry arms wherever they, they went. Um, and so we're moving now from bare arms, which is a military phrase, to things that have a slightly different um, uh, valence to them. Um, carry arms rather than bear arms or carry guns rather than bear arms. Bear arms had an obviously core military sense, but now we're moving away from that, from bear arms to carry arms or carry guns, talking about personal liberty, personal security. Um, we see it most obviously in the home, okay? You need a gun in your home if someone's going to attack you. But what about um, um, if you're afraid of being assaulted when you go outside the home? Um, and, um, and, and we're going to come now to the third um, time slice, which is America Today and the Supreme Court oral argument in, in the case. But I, I just want our audience to begin to see, oh, we're shifting from one kind of vision at the founding to a rather different vision, um, much more congenial to um, a broad um, private um, uh, gun-toting and, and gun-keeping um, than at the founding. Really, the Fourteenth Amendment is is almost expressly over, you know, throwing out uh, part of the constitutional regime uh, of of before the Civil War by virtue of the first of this clause and the first clause in the Fourteenth Amendment. Right, two key clauses, two key cases uh, before the Civil War: Dred Scott and Barron versus Baltimore. Yes, um, and the first first uh, sentence in the Fourteenth Amendment. All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. Well, that expressly overrules that statement in Dred Scott that you just said. The Dred Scott said blacks, even if born free, even if their grandfather fought at Bunker Hill, as, as some um, blacks did fight at Lexington and conquered Bunker Hill, even if they descend from free voters, they can't be citizens. That's what Dred Scott said. And the, and the framers of the 14th Amendment said, no, we think that free blacks actually are citizens. Um, uh, Barron, uh, and Bridget Scott was 1857. Barron, as you mentioned, is an 1833 case, Barron versus City of Baltimore, in which John Marshall said the Bill of Rights basically applies against the federal government, um, not against states and localities, not against Baltimore. And the next sentence of the 14th Amendment says, no, we actually want these fundamental rights to apply against states and localities. No state shall violate these fundamental rights. And now you're going to say, I know because I know you, Andy, and you asked me this offline, you're going to say, well, um, gee, if they really were repudiating Dred Scott, how come you're relying on Dred Scott when you say keep and carry arms? I say, because they didn't disagree with everything in Dred Scott. They disagreed with the idea that blacks couldn't be citizens. Um, but they agreed with the following thought, that if you were a citizen, you had certain fundamental privileges or immunities. Dred Scott actually uses the phrase privileges and immunities and says what the privileges and immunities are include the right to keep and carry arms wherever you go and liberty of speech. And it said, gee, if blacks really were capable of being citizens, they'd have a freedom of speech and a right to carry arms wherever they wanted. And that can't be right. Um, and the framers of the 14th Amendment says actually blacks are citizens, but 
I think they did agree with uh, Tawny that what it meant to be a citizen was to have all sorts of basic rights, but they're reinterpreting some of these rights, maybe even without being fully conscious of it. They are reinterpreting to some extent what this arms bearing idea really is, and they're privatizing it um, in, in various ways. Um, and the National Rifle Association, the NRA, is founded after the Civil War by a group of ex-Union Army officers. Um, and um, so um, uh, their motto, when guns are outlawed, only um, outlaws will have guns, is very similar to um, the Freedmen's Bureau idea, when guns are outlawed, only Klansmen will have guns. Very different than the founding version, when guns are outlawed, only the king's men, only the army will have guns. Very different idea. Okay, so now we come to today, and I suppose we come to this case, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association very uh, Bruin. Um, so, you know, when you listen to the oral argument, um, or you read a recap of the oral argument, they really didn't leave the plane of the Second Amendment in the in the oral argument, did they? I, I would have liked it more if they had talked about two additional things, the 14th Amendment, because strictly speaking, this isn't a Second Amendment case. It's about New York, okay? It's about the 14th Amendment. And I wish they'd also uh, uh, talked about, as you talked about at the very beginning of this podcast episode, the question of unenumerated rights. Well, suppose actually um, there wasn't this 14th Amendment history. There are um, uh, additional unenumerated rights beyond those that might have been recognized in 1790s or in the 1860s. Where do we find them? If they're rights of citizens, privileges and means of citizens, if they're rights retained by the people, that's a Ninth Amendment phrase that maybe should be now applied in, um, even against states and localities and not against just uh, federal officialdom, where do we find rights of the people that might not be enumerated in the uh, a Constitution or the Bill of Rights? Where do we find privileges or immunities of citizens beyond those things that are mentioned in Amendments 1 through 8? Um, well, maybe we find them in state constitutions and actual state practices and how Americans actually um, live their lives. So, um, uh, uh, you know that I've championed an idea of actually uh, counting um, uh, the number of states that, that recognize um, this um, right or that one. And when enough states um, recognize a certain basic right, there there's a, a strong argument. It's, it's not um, uh, irrefutable, but there's often a strong argument when enough states with enough people in them, I think you should count more populous states, uh, uh, for um, give them more weight than than um, t uh, tiny states, but when enough states with enough people start to recognize a given right, whether um, it's um, a right to um, uh, have a gun in the home for self protection or a right to have um, um, marital privacy in your home, um, when enough states recognize that um, a right to testify in a um, a criminal case in your own defense, then um, a, a, a court might be warranted in uh, requiring the outlier states to get on board and respect that right uh, as well. Even if it isn't in the Second Amendment, even if it wasn't in the minds of the framers of the 14th Amendment, even if it's a, a modern unenumerated right, like Griswold-style privacy arguably is, uh, the case about contraceptive use in the home, like uh, the modern right 
which was not recognized at the founding or in the 1860s, of a criminal defendant to take the stand in his own defense. So I think that this came up twice uh, in the oral argument that in my in my examination. First of all, um, Paul Clement, uh, who argued for uh, the Gun Association, um, he said that, well, first of all, there's a right to carry a gun outside the home uh, that's protected under the text of the Second Amendment, he said. Okay. But he said that on top of that, 43 states enshrine this right into their constitution. And, now, and if so, ooh, that's, a, that, that's an important fact for, uh, in Amar's land, for, for Amarca's constitution, and many, many Supreme Court cases Landmark cases, Lawrence versus Texas, Gideon versus Wainwright, and, and many more, um, um, lots of cases under the Cruel and Unusual Punishment Clause actually do, um, um, Griswold versus Connecticut, uh, um, in Justice Harlan's uh, um, pivotal concurring opinion, uh, many landmark cases do, in fact, count state practice and, and tote them up. Just to repeat several of the, of the, the biggest ones. Uh, Harlan's uh, concurrence in the contraception case of Griswold versus Connecticut says only Connecticut is restricting this right of married couples to to use contraception. Uh, Gideon versus Wainwright in this last paragraph, Hugo Black, epic, the important justice, big champion of incorporation, says only five states um, are not allowing, um, are not providing for appointed counsel for all felony defendants. And indeed, those five, all of which were in that uh, former Confederacy, by the way, um, even even they provide for appointed counsel in capital cases and in big cities, typically. Um, Lawrence versus Texas, a case about um, uh, gay rights, actually said a, a vanishingly small number of states are actually trying to prohibit um, consensual um, sodomy. And, 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 um, uh, and even those states aren't really, um, m- most of them, enforcing um, the laws that are on the books. So those are, um, and, and I mentioned before, when, when the Supreme Court finally recognizes in the 1960s a right of a criminal defendant to take the stand in his, um, on, on his own defense, um, almost all the states are already on board. And then uh, the other time that it came up, you know, a lot of the argument in this case has to do with, um, you know, whether the state, the, the question is, is the state's regulation, you know, too overbroad? Um, and are they, uh, they what what they they mostly denied permits? What they're saying to, um, to people to carry, um, unless the people could show that they had a particular need um, for self defense because of some activity they engaged in or some place that they went, you know, and so forth. So that's that's some of the the argue, the reason that this case uh, came before the court. And Andy, hang on, so, just there, just on on that point. This is really important because I think the Supreme Court is probably going to side with the gun guys. Okay. It's really important. This is not saying you can't have a permit regime like we have a licensing for automobiles. It's saying the permit um, regime can't be about whether the government thinks you have a good enough reason for wanting it. Just like they don't ask me why I want to drive a car in general. Um, um, but maybe, but they can make sure they, they, they can, um, uh, because uh, cars are lethal too, let me tell you. Um, the government does, may legitimately say, you got to show you know how to use this thing, okay? Um, and you have to pass a, a, a book test 
and a practical test and 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 we can um require that the license be renewed regularly and you can't abuse it so so if we can um, um have rules about um guns even if the gun uh, rules about cars excuse me um even if new york loses this case and the gun groups win it that doesn't depending on how they write the opinion that wouldn't mean you couldn't have a permitting regime it just means the permitting regime can't and leave it to the whim, the discretion of officialdom, whether you're a good enough person um, to be able to have a gun or not, whether you have a good enough reason. Instead, um, a regime, which I bet I think many states do have, um, certain regimes in which you have to show you know how to use this thing before you can get a proper permit. So Justice Roberts, um, though, I think was was probably in some ways the most extreme on this. So Here's a, a question he, he asked. Here's a quote from, which I got off the SCOTUS blog. Um, you know, he said, first he didn't like the fact that New York wanted applicants to prove that they had a need to carry. Yeah. And okay, I which relates to what, to what you were saying. And especially, says, hang on, just especially if you even have an understanding of the 14th Amendment, you might say, hmm, wouldn't be surprised if white people in a certain, you know, uh, state, let's say in a Southern state, if you had that regime in 1870 in Mississippi, white people need guns and black people, says say the officials, you know, the white officials administering this discretionary system. And, and whenever black people seek um, a, a permission, you know, you don't really, you know, need a gun, you know? Um, and, and so I can see uh, an absolutely, um, a system of, of complete um, a bureaucratic discretion and arbitrariness might make him uneasy, even if he's just channeling the 14th Amendment experience. Well, here's what he said. He said, no matter what the right is, that's not a direct quote, but here, here's a direct quote. It would be surprising to have it depend upon a permit system. You can say that the right is limited in a particular way, just as First Amendment rights are limited, but the or First Amendment right are limited, it's probably a typo. But the idea you need a license to exercise the right, I think, is unusual in the context of the Bill of Rights. Yeah, so I like the idea he's thinking panoramically, saying, well, is that how we do it for other rights? But of course, it's not the case that every single reason that you have for one right um, applies to another right. And the, the, the scope of of every right kind of has to be the same in all respects or even in this one. So here's what's easy and obvious, Chief Justice Roberts, with all due respect, that um, uh, when you are in prison, you do not get to, as, let's say because you've been convicted of a felony, we don't let you take your gun in the cell with you. Okay, and, and and the NRA believes that, and you believe that, and every sane person believes that. And even after you're out of prison as an ex-felon, actually, it's possible that you will uh, will have lost your gun rights if you, especially if you're committed of a, a violent felony with a weapon, armed robbery, for example. It'd be perfectly um, sensible to say once you've been convicted of armed robbery, we're going to put you in prison for ten years, and you don't get get to carry your take your gun in with you. And even after ten years, you've lost your gun rights. But no one would say, if you're convicted of armed robbery, that you don't have, um, um, uh, you're not allowed to actually write a newspaper op-ed. 
um, when you're in prison, right? A letter from a Birmingham jail to, to just to, to, to invoke a very famous um, episode of First Amendment activity in jail. That's Martin Luther King. Gandhi, you know, wrote very famous things from prison. And surely after you're out of prison, of course, you have all sorts of First Amendment rights. So um, and, and what, why? What's the difference? Because quite obviously, you know, sticks and stones and guns can break my bones and kill me and words can't. And so there are reasons why we treat the First Amendment differently from the second. We would have justice, Chief Justice Roberts, with due respect, huge um, protection of freedom of speech in the press even if we didn't have a First Amendment, because it's central to how we govern ourselves as a society. Um, And I'm not sure that guns in the home for self-protection or guns for sport or guns for hunting or recreation, just gun-toting more generally, is um, central to self-government and free elections the way uh, political discourse and, 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 and robust rights of political expression are, of course, central to um, um, democracy itself. You can have a democracy that limits gun-toting. There are many great democracies around the world that limit gun-toting a lot more than does America. But all the great democracies around the world um, today have um, robust protections of political expression. America has even more than most, but they all have robust protection. Um, And many of them have much less um, a gun-toting. Britain is not a gun-toting regime nearly to the extent that, that we are in America. Australia used to be pretty gun-toting, but I think recently they, they dramatically uh, changed their, their practices. So he's asking a great question, you know, which is why would you have a different rule for this amendment than that one? And I hope I've given him a satisfactory answer. And of course, they started this question about, you know, uh, contextual... Uh, components to rights, I think, is an important one uh, in this case, because a lot of what they talked about is whether you can exclude, uh, what you, whether you can say, look, you can't bring your gun to certain places. You can't bring your gun to a courthouse or a school or an airport. You know, these are were, were places that they were saying, you know, well, are we going to be able to regulate this? Um, and, you know, how arbitrary is it? And the, the New York, in fact, used this argument um, to try to support the law that that every that people agree that you can regulate it on this basis, so why can't we regulate it based on you know the likelihood that you're going to need the gun you know in these places? If the right is self defense, well, you still have a you still need to defend have a right of self defense in the courthouse, for example, but you can't bring a gun in there, or can you? Depending on certain states, you you can actually. Um, but so so that was a that was a question. And I think that this leads to uh, to another question, which is that the the justices were very concerned um, about the right of the person carrying the gun. Um, they were less concerned about the other people that might be affected by uh, him carrying him or her carrying the gun. Um, so, for example, uh, New York made the point that. Uh, it's more dangerous for people to be carrying guns openly or otherwise in densely populated areas, like urban areas. And Chief Justice Roberts replied, well, but you have a greater need for self-defense in an urban area. So again, looking at things from the point of view of the gun-toting person. So two or three thoughts on that. A lot of really, a lot of points you just uh, threw at me or (laughs) or shot at me, but um, okay. Um, 
Gee, I, I, I'm a Boy Scout, actually. I, I was an Eagle Scout, in fact. And, uh, and when we're out in the countryside camping, um, I was actually happy that my Scoutmaster used to have a gun on him because there are um, animals out there, lions and tigers and bears. <laughs> Maybe not lions and tigers, but there, there definitely were bear and cougar um, um, and, and, and bobcats and coyote where, and wolves um, where we, um, uh, out in the, when we were out in the woods. Um, and guns are protected for that. So he kept asking, like, are you going to get mugged in, in the woods or something? Um, and I'm thinking, well, first of all, there are animals and guns protect you against that. And being, on, you know, on being assaulted or mugged in the woods, maybe the word mugging is doing a certain work because you, that, that conjures up maybe an, an ur- urban um, image. But, you know, Chief Justice Roberts, have you actually ever seen the movie Deliverance? Okay, you, you need a gun, you know, sometimes because there are, there are bad guys in the woods or, or like any horror movie, you, you know, you've ever seen, you know, uh, don't go in the woods, he's in there. So, um, so, um, so um, but, but there is an urban rural issue here that's very interesting because I said count states. Um, and offline, you say, but actually, states might be really different. Urban states might actually um, regulate guns sensibly differently than rural states. And maybe actually we should only count urban states or something like that. Because it really is true that in an apartment house or something like that or in a densely populated area, um, there might be, um, uh, uh, let's just imagine just even a dwelling place. Uh, uh, there, um, the Fourth Amendment talks about houses, so does the Third Amendment. Well, an apartment house is different than a standalone house because an apartment house, um, if you shoot um, um, uh, in your apartment, it can maybe go through four other apartments, you know, um, and that's not true. Um, you know, a- Andy's been to, to, to my house in the woods in, in Connecticut and, and there's no, there ain't no one around. Um, so, um, so even if we're going to look at state practices, we might need to look at states that are similarly situated with respect to the right at issue. And for a whole bunch of rights, the states are all the same. Why would religious exercise be different, you know, in a rural state or an urban state or a northern state or the southern state? So, so when it comes to free exercise or free speech, just count all the states. And then the only question is whether you should count big ones more heavily. Yeah, it seems sensible to count them um, more because the more people live in them. Um, and they, they respect the, and, and any law that comes out of a big state is a reflection of the considered judgment of, of more citizens, um, more people uh, on a kind of um, uh, a wisdom of crowds idea. So, so count California more than Wyoming because every California law um, is uh, supported by more people. But when it comes to guns and, and the threats they pose, because and we go back to the my earlier point, sticks and stones, you know, and guns can break my bones. So given that a gun can threaten other people and can threaten more people in a dense situation, a dense urban situation, than a, um, a rural situation, yes, um, I would say sensible unenumerated rights analysis um, focuses on um, which are genuinely similarly situated states. And I think that... Uh... This is why I mentioned earlier the notion that the uh, 14th Amendment uh, empowering of blacks to carry guns uh, to to protect themselves from the Klan is actually about a right to to remain alive more than it is about the right to carry a gun. You know, if you could somehow insulate yourself from the Klan without having to carry a gun, 
that would be preferable, and that would and perhaps then it wouldn't be a need for for that. So, but the if, they're, if they're rough and tumble neighborhoods, you know, the mm-hmm. argument is, you know, I'm um, think of Billy Joel. You know, I walk through Bedford Stuyvesant alone, so I can understand why someone who lives in a rough neighborhood would want to have a gun. Um, I can understand also um, why um, we wouldn't want to just leave it up to government officials in their you know infinite wisdom and discretion whether you're good enough to um, have a gun or you're, you have a, a, a good enough need as they understand it, because that's going to be a regime in which only the, the maybe the, the rich and powerful um, have guns. And in fact, in New York, that's how it worked. The certain wealthy people um, got uh, permits and other people didn't. Um, I'm advocating though, because I think the gun side is going to win in, in the New York case, if I've, if I've um, counted my votes correctly. Um, but none of that says we can't sensibly regulate guns on the model of cars, for example. You need to show you know how to use it. You need to take a practical test. You need to take an, a, 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 a book test. We might limit what kinds of weapons you can have. Are you allowed to have a machine gun everywhere? You know, um, that's the size of the of the magazine. Um, you know, do you need um, uh, um, a magazine of 500 bullets, you know, to, 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 to protect your home. Um, so, so there are all sorts of reasonable regulations, again, as measured by state practice, um, that might be um, uh, uh, okay, but an utterly um, arbitrary um, system of uh, administrative, um, you know, pure administrative whim, discretion. We decide whether you're good enough or not, whether your reason is good enough. I could understand why a court might worry about that. I Even though it threatens the rest of us. I mean, that puts the rest of us at, at risk. Um, right. Well, that's, so the question is that, you know, what is, what is a, an individual's right to not be at risk from other people carrying guns? How does that get weighed against the right of an individual to carry a gun. And I think that this is, so this is, so two things, if I may. First of all, I think this is becoming a lot more important because I read an article the other day about the rise in these self-defense laws and changes in definitions of self-defense, that you, what does it mean to be the aggressor, you know, and so forth. And we're seeing this with the Kyle Rittenhouse case, yes. um, as well as other cases. So that arguably, these changes in the law and the Zimmerman case in Florida, these cases are raising the danger to those of us who are not armed um, because the legal protection against the misuse of guns um, by those who would carry them in these, in these uh, areas um, are, are, are lowering. Now the 14th amendment says no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. So I, I was getting ready to argue that one of my privileges or immunities is to be safe, mm-hmm. okay, from getting shot, mm-hmm. okay? And so, but this is kind of an absolute prohibition. No state shall make or enforce, which shall abridge, so not even eliminate, but abridge a, prim, a privilege or immunity. So how does this work when you have to weigh Two privileges or immunities. Yeah. Um, if if they are mutually incompatible and, 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 and you can't abridge yeah. either one, and, and what do you do? Yeah. Well, and note that um, um, uh, there's a nice question about whether the state is abridging uh, anything uh, when uh, uh, 
uh, uh, some uh, private person, Billy the Kid, shoots you up. In general, our tradition has distinguished between so-called negative rights and, and positive or affirmative rights. And most of the rights that states can't abridge are um, um, uh, rights um, that are, are negative rights, rights against state intervention. They're not rights to something. I, um, uh, I have a right to education, to welfare, to um, unemployment benefits. Sometimes there are folks who have advocated for, for a positive rights. I'm, I'm one of them. Um, but in general, the Supreme Court has been very hesitant to constitutionalize positive rights, a, a right to be free from um, someone else's private violence. Um, the, um, so when the state actually doesn't sufficiently protect um, law-abiding citizens from gun toters and gun toters shoot, um, uh, threaten the rest of us with guns. A court might say, "Well, even if you have some right to of of of, of, of to be safe and 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 um, have peace of mind, the state hasn't really violated that right. It's the gun toter." Well, you might apply that same argument to vaccines. Right. In other words, that I have a right to to walk in a public environment where I'm not being where the state needs to maintain the public health and is not, you know, ma- allowing people to, you know, be unvaccinated and spread their germs, you know, to me from, from one kind of shot to another kind of shot. Um, but note, almost no one has argued that vaccine mandates are required under that theory, only that they're permissible. And so even the vaccines, again, you see the power of this negative rights uh, conception that's, that is a, a very powerful framework in the American constitutional tradition. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because privileges and immunities, one could think of privilege as, as um, you know, as one thing and an immunity is, you know, one can be positive and one can be negative, an immunity as opposed to a privilege. Right. But even privilege can be understood, again, as this kind of paradigmatically, classically negative thing. Just stay out of my way. Don't mess with me. Don't interfere with me, which tends to argue in favor of a kind of libertarian, no governmental regulation regime. Yeah, it's kind of an American versus a European view of things. It's exactly an American versus a European version of things, which you will see um, dramatically if you ever go to Niagara Falls and just compare the American side, which is a little bit sort of um, run down, very privatized, with the European, uh, with the Canadian side, excuse me, which is actually um, um, much more Swiss. Um, uh, <laughs> Plenty of cheese. But the second issue, again, and, we not, and, and I know we're coming to the, the close of our time, um, is a kind of accounting question. Um, there's a cultural division between states here. And, um, and if you lived in, you know, the, the free and easy state of Wyoming or, or Texas, you might be a little more comfortable with people toting guns all the time because they, they actually um, um, uh, have a more gun-toting culture. And it makes you nervous because actually you live in a state that doesn't do that. The court is saying, ah, this is turnabout being fair play. For the longest time, a conservative court, for the longest time, Yankee state values were being imposed on the Southland, 
Um, that's what the Warren Court did. Um, and now, actually, you know, this is the revenge of the South and the Midwest. A common trope in Second Amendment discourse has been the Second Amendment shouldn't be a second-class right. Um, and, and, and that's where you're, you're seeing things like, gee, we don't have a permit regime for the First Amendment. Why should we have a permit regime for the Second Amendment? I'm in favor of a permit regime um, uh, on the model of driver's license permits. I don't want it to be completely discretionary because I, I see the problem there. But um, this, um, and this trope, well, we don't have a permit regime for the press, so how can we have a permit regime for arms bearing? Because there's special rules and a special history about press licensing and freedoms from prior restraint. Every rule that makes sense for freedom of speech in the press does not automatically carry over into arms bearing. And remember the Warren Court, it incorporated lots of other provisions of the Bill of Rights, but not the Second Amendment. So, so um, there is this pent up thought that gee, um, um, certain rights are second-class rights and believers in that are second-class citizens. And, and you're seeing some of these you know, memes and tropes uh, surfacing. It is sort of relevant. If we're going to count states, I'm not sure how many states actually have a, any sort of formal um, law that says there is a right to be secure from private gun violence or something um, uh, uh, so you're absolutely right. There are competing, clashing uh, cultural visions. It is an occasion, therefore, for the court to go carefully here. On the facts of this case, New York has adopted a discretionary regime that goes much, much further than most states have done in trying to protect the rights of, of the rest of us to be just safe from private gun violence. Um, so you could say this law goes too far without condemning a, a general regime of uh, regulating guns on the model of regulating other lethal devices like automobiles. And actually, you know, Justice Kavanaugh, I think, hinted that that was the way he was going to come out because he said that um, the right was established in the text, um, meaning I believe that he meant the text of the Second Amendment, um, and then he said that we should rely on historical practice to ju- to when we examine the various regulations. Well, which is kind of what you're saying. Yeah, let's that we, see. you know we should count to see who's how many states are are have this sort of regulation. Now, of course, you know we we've discussed in the past. Well, how do you innovate if that's the case? Um, so uh, you know, so so that's that's a question that remains. And, but and it sounds like that's how he's going to decide. Um, uh, I promised our audience to just briefly tell a story about what happened in the wake of Newtown. So I believe that there is a right to have a gun in the home for self-protection. I, I'm, I've not really written about um, uh, home, a gun use outside the home very much. In the wake of Newtown, I did have this conversation with Ezra Klein. Uh, and then shortly thereafter, I was invited to brief the House Democratic Caucus um, about sensible gun control. And actually, uh, um, it was close to the press, so I wasn't able to talk about it for the longest time. But but now enough time has passed, and um, and um, so the statute of limitations on that cone of silence has has basically lapsed. The vice president of the United States at the time was Joe Biden. He got up and and, and talked. Then I actually gave uh, the same audience a, a kind of um, briefing about um, 
what serious gun regulation would look like and and how it would pass constitutional muster. And then actually uh, the president of the United States, Barack Obama, gave up and uh, came up and, and, and gave a talk. It was, you know, really an extraordinary event to be part of. Here's one thing that I did say. I say, if you're going to regulate guns, you really actually need to be expert on it. You need to so you need to talk to gun owners. You need to actually show that you respect them and and um, and their values and and vision. For some people, it's not really just about the gun. It's about their culture. It's about how they were uh, were brought up. It's about their their father with whom they used to go hunting, the father's has passed away. It's, it's very deep and identitarian and visceral. And if you're trying to regulate guns and you don't even know what a gun looks like, you're going to actually probably say things in the law that um, are going to cause you problems in court. For example, a lot of gun law, uh, a major federal gun law actually just tried to regulate cosmetic Things like um, whether it had a, a whether the gun looked nasty, whether it, it had um, a bayonet on it, um, uh, which really doesn't contribute very much to lethality. Um, whether it had a, a wooden stock or a plastic stock. Um, whether um, uh, some of these laws actually, because they couldn't specify the actual hardware that was more lethal. Um, simply identified certain um, uh, um, gun brands by name. That's going to be a real problem at the Supreme Court because they're going to see that as just reflecting kind of woke um, cultural hostility to guns and gun owners rather than sensible, you know, careful policy wonk analysis of um, the the actual um, uh, uh lethality and dangerousness of, of the weapon at issue. Um, one thing that we haven't talked about, but maybe when the decision comes down, um, we will have another episode on this is oh, all the different kinds of weapons. Uh, might you distinguish between tasers, for example, um, and, um, and um, uh, other sorts of, of, of guns? What, what actually counts as arms, you know, and, and, and might we regulate some um, uh, uh, more strictly than others because some are, uh, uh, pose a lot more of a threat to innocent passersby, which is your concern. Yeah, so I think you're right. We so this, this could go on forever, although I am interested in what you just told me what, what sensible gun regulation would not look like. Uh, I'd be more interested in hearing what it would look like. Um, you know, at some point. And, and, um, and, let, and, and it's probably going to be better if we do that after this case comes down because the court is going to give us some guidance on that, I suspect. Yeah, I, my feeling from reading this just uh, without expertise is that they're clearly going to say that the, that the law is overbroad, you know, it just goes too far. But I think they're going to repeat some of the things that are in Heller, namely that, that it is okay to say that there are sensitive places that you can't bring guns. Um, there seem to be consensus on that, at least among you know many of the justices in the in the argument. So I think that they will qualify. I think they'll. I think it'll actually be a, a bit of a nothing burger, um, actually, in a way, uh, in the end. But that doesn't mean that it's not worth you know talking about. Right, and ah, but but, but 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 even if it's a nothing burger, 
um, which scholars will they cite? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. And yeah, that is, that is the question, of course. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you very much. And uh, next week, um, we'll leave it open for you. Thank you.